Hope you have your Bible open to that passage in James chapter 4 because this morning we're talking about a really important issue, the issue of self-sufficiency. It's the barrier to what it means to be desperate. So during the summer months, I love to do something that many people consider to be absolutely crazy, and frankly, that's part of the joy of, uh, of, of doing it, and that is that uh, this, even yesterday, participated along with Dale Shaw in a sprint triathlon. And uh, so if you don't know what a triathlon is, you do a swim, about 500 meters, a bike, 12 miles, and then a run, about three miles. So yesterday, Dale and I did this together. In fact, I, I don't think I'll ever have a tattoo. As close as I get, it's this right here. So there we go. Okay, there's my tat today, Jermaine, right there, man. See it? So that's, the thing about a, a triathlon is this. The scariest part of it is, can you guess what part? The swim. Exactly. In a bike, you can just get off and stop. A run, you can slow down. You know, if something goes wrong with a swim, it's a funeral, right? <laughs> okay, so. And what I've come to learn over the years is that my greatest barrier to competing well in a triathlon is not my swimming ability. The greatest barrier is my tendency to freak out. And, and the reason is, is that there are, there are bodies all over the place, splashing, people hitting you, running into you, things of that sort, of water's all over the place. And I've had to get my mind and my head around the fact that I'm going to panic, and when I panic, I just need to chill out and just swim the race that I'm trying to swim. And I've discovered that having that understanding that I tend to panic and I tend to freak out helps as I approach that event because it helps me to get my mind and my head around what my posture needs to be as it relates to this event. So that when I start to freak out, I know, no, no, don't freak out. As it relates to the issue of desperation, I want you to know that the internal freak out button for every single one of us, the internal barrier, the, the greatest hindrance, I would argue, to our desire to be desperate is the issue of self-sufficiency. That there is this tendency within every single one of us to rely on ourselves, to trust in ourselves, and to hope in our ability to be able to figure it out. By definition, in terms of self-sufficiency, what I mean is this, rather than having my first step being towards God, I need your help, rather than having my first step be towards God, would you give me what I need in this situation, that lurking under the surface of my life is this tendency to freak out, and to begin to trust myself. This can happen in the midst of a crisis. It's also just simply a matter of the air we breathe in our culture. So last week we talked about desperation as a gift. I wanted you to see that it's, it's a way for us to, to, to see hardship and difficulty as the thing that God uses to get our attention. And I hope that as crisis moments sort of hit you over the last week, that you, you thought a little differently about them. I had a conversation with one of our church members uh, last week about just such an incident in his life, and I, I wanted to have our brother Keith White come and share. So brother, if you'd come and uh, just share a little, just a brief testimony of how the Lord used last week's message in his life, because I want you to hear what he has to say. It'll be encouragement to you. I think also will help you how to take steps in your walk with Christ. So my brother Keith White's been a member at College Park for seven years. Would you welcome him? Good morning. 
So we have a family member who uh, has some spiritual and emotional challenges. And last week, uh, after the sermon, I went to work and I was sitting in the car working and I got a phone call from her. And she was screaming and yelling and she was in crisis mode and it was not good. It was really bad. And uh, immediately, um, while I was talking to her, my wife rings in and she calls and now she's telling me about what's going on and it has to do with you know, us possibly not seeing our grandchildren ever again. So um, as that was going on, then um, the family member, she hung up the phone and I just immediately, I put the computer down, turned the radio off and I just started praying and I said, God, you know what, I'm desperate. There's, there's nothing I can do with this. I, I just need you to come in. Now, normally, I don't do that. Normally, I am, okay, what can I do to fix this? Um, I'm going to go over there. I'm going to call somebody who can call her and talk to her. I always try and figure out how I can fix it. And I didn't do that Sunday. I just started praying right away. Found out that my wife did the exact same thing at the exact same time. And then um, the phone rang. It was my wife. She was, still, she was talking. The conversation completely changed. I could hear them. And it just changed right away to uh, completely calm. The whole thing just turned right around. And I sit there for a while before that phone call um, when they called back. And I was just quiet. I just didn't do anything. Didn't say anything after I prayed. I just sit there. And that just gave me a whole new light to be still and know that I'm God. And it was just amazing what he did just because I decided to call on him and say, you know, I'm desperate. There's nothing I can do to fix this. And he did. And it was amazing. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you, brother. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So the reason I wanted you to hear from my brother Keith is just there's going to be situations that you face in your life that are just like that. Some of them are going to happen this afternoon, later on this week. And I just want you to realize that as we kind of navigate our way towards dependence, that's the goal, desperation becomes a moment when we realize, God, I need your help. And I want you to embrace that moment. The challenge, however, is that within every single one of us, there, there's a, a barrier, a hindrance, and the main hindrance that we face to get to that point where we say, God, I need your help, is this issue of self-sufficiency. And from James chapter 4 this morning, we're going to unpack this. I want to help you to see the problem of what's going on inside of us, and then secondly, the promise that God offers to us in his word, and then the posture, sort of how do we need to think about this, this issue of, of self-sufficiency. So let's start here first with the nature of the problem. Or maybe a better way to think about it is the nature of the problems. So in order to understand the issue of self-sufficiency, we have to start at a pretty basic level of understanding what's the nature of the problem within all of us. And I've chosen James 4 today because, frankly, it is one of the best and one of the clearest texts that sort of peels back the layers of our lives to help us see some things about ourselves. And so in a moment, I'm going to share with you a number of layers that exist in the heart of every single human being. I need to know that James chapter 4 is not specifically addressing prayer, it's not specifically addressing the, the issue directly of desperation or self-sufficiency, although you're going to see it in the text. But the reason that James is addressing this is there are problems in the life of this church. And in chapter one and verse, or chapter four and verse one, we, we hear what James says. He says this, what causes quarrels and fights among you? 
So the issue is that there are difficulties and challenges that are happening in the context of the church, and James is essentially trying to help those people understand, look, when this happens, here's what's going on inside of you. It's sort of like if you've had an argument with a friend or with a, a spouse, and you just kind of look in the mirror and like, what's wrong with me that this happened? Or what's going on here? Well, James helps us to diagnose the problems underneath. There's five of them in this text. Number one, he identifies that the problem within each of us is our self-centered passions. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So that word passions is a really important word. It's the Greek word hedone. It's the word from which we get our word hedonist. And the idea is this self-centered pleasure-seeking. The word consistently in the New Testament has a negative application. Essentially, when you peel back the most foundational layer of what it means to be human, there is this love for oneself that lies at the core of the human heart. So I don't care how young you are, how old you are, if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, all of us as human beings share in this same problem. And that is, boil us down at the core of who we are, there is a fundamental problem, which is we love ourselves. Do you believe that's true? We love ourselves. No one has to teach a child how to love him or herself. And what James says is at the very base of who we are is this problem of self-love. Secondly, he continues and he says this, this self-love expresses itself in ungodly desires. He says you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So what happens is this self-centered love that's, that's baked into just who we are as human beings, it expresses itself in strong desires and those strong desires are often frustrated. So it goes like this, you, we love ourselves, we want what we want, and when we don't get what we want, we get frustrated, and then we do things in order to try and grab a hold of that which we cannot grab a hold of on our own. We're willing even to do outrageous things, willing to say outrageous things. I'm sure you had it, it's true in your life, it certainly is in mine, that in the midst of something that you really wanted, you were willing to say something that you just can't believe came out. Inside the heart of every human being is this ever-churning cauldron of wrong desires. These conflicts, these wars, these quarrels, they all come from here. So self-centered passions, ungodly desires. Third is prayerless living. This text is kind of depressing, isn't it? I mean, you came, this is your first Sunday to College Park. Just know it's going to get a lot better in a moment, I promise. <laughs> he says, you do not have because you do not ask. So not only are there, is there this self-centered passion, not only are there ungodly desires, but there's also this, this prayerless living. So a significant symptom of these broken desires is a lack of prayer. So self-centered people who are filled with ungodly desires are marked by prayerlessness. In James chapter one and verse five, he says that if we lack wisdom, we should ask God because God wants to give it to us. 
And the issue is that self-sufficient people simply do not ask God for help. Self-sufficient people do not pray. So if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, but you struggle with your prayer life, it may not be just an issue that you don't know how to pray. It might be deeper than that. It might not be just that you don't make time to pray or you're too busy to pray, but rather it may be that at the core of sort of how you operate in life, you think you can make it on your own and therefore you don't talk to God about your needs. The problem though is that even when we do pray, it's affected by this brokenness within us. Look at the next verse. Here's the fourth thing. It's not only that we don't pray, but even when we do, we pray selfishly. He says, not only do you do not have because you don't ask, but then he says you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This is awful. It's not just that you don't pray, but it's when you do pray, you do so with selfish motives. It's amazing, Jesus in Luke chapter 18, after issuing the parable about the the woman who keeps coming to this judge over and over and over in order to get the justice that she needs, and she just keeps persisting, and Jesus shows her as as a model of persistent prayer, he then in Luke 18 talks about the Pharisee and the tax collector who went up to pray at the temple, and he identifies the unrighteousness of the prayer of what was supposed to be considered a righteous man, this Pharisee. And I want you just to hear just how awful these words are. It says the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, or he prayed in this way. In fact, here's what I want to do. I want you to read this prayer out loud so you don't stay distant from it. Like, oh my word, how could he pray like that? I want you to hear these words coming out of your own mouth. Here's what he says, out loud together. Ready? God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Can you imagine? Here he is standing before God, and he says, God, I thank you that I'm better than everybody else. (laughs) Man, I'll tell you what, I'm glad. You ought to be glad I'm not God. Yeah, I'm glad you're not God, because you know what we do? Poof, they gotta be gone, right? He's like dust, you know, he's, oh, it's over. Oh, church, let's be careful, even fearful, of prayers that use God as our lackey. One of the things that's so interesting about moments of desperation is they reveal how much we needed God and how much we've needed him all throughout our lives. But our desperation, because of a crisis, sort of awakens us to how much we need God's help. So James says what's wrong with humanity is we have the self-centered passions, ungodly desires, prayerless living, fourth, selfish prayer. And number five, finally, we have this, this cultural drifting. James concludes his cautionary words with some pretty strong language. He, he says to them in verse four, you adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not, you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? 
So the idea is this, not only is there something going on within us that's challenging, something that's broken, this this tendency to trust in ourselves, but it is that the entire culture around us has this gravitational pull towards self-sufficiency. And in so doing, we end up putting ourselves on the wrong side of God. That's what verse five means when it says makes himself an enemy of God, or when it says that he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. It's like you're sort of running cross grain against the way that God has intended, if you're a follower of Jesus, for you to live. He cautions us that the entire system in which we live is characterized by self-oriented, self-trusting living. So you need to see that the whole framework of the world and the culture in which we live tends towards trusting in ourselves. Within our own hearts is this tendency not only to love ourselves, but to desire things that will facilitate that self-love. And if we're not careful, all of these layers can collude to put us into a scenario where the standard, typical, operating way in which we live is by resting in our own ability. So let me ask you, do any of these problems or layers resonate within you? Have you seen them at all in your life recently? Do you see them in the the, the, the culture in which we live, part of the air in which we breathe? See, part of the purpose of this text It's just simply to sort of raise your awareness of this tendency toward self-sufficiency. So then, when, like Keith, when a problem comes up in the next week, that your first instinct, your first instinct rather, will not be to go towards anger. Oh, I can't believe this happened again. Or anxiety. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Some of us, you tend towards anger. You want what you want, so you use even just brute force by emotions or even physicality or the sort of fear of that to try and get whatever you want. And there's others who struggle with anxiety. Like you just think, if I can just figure this out and figure this out and figure this out. And the reality is between those two poles is this place that God wants to meet us. Some of you come to church today, you're really frustrated. And I get it, your life has been hard and difficult Some of you are here today and you're just enormously anxious and you're just struggling with what do I do and I don't have answers for you, but here's what I know. The answer for your future and the hope for the solution is not found in yourself. It can't be. And what James warns us about is this tendency to look inside, to look internal. Even though inside is filled with all kinds of brokenness. Last week, our staff met for a time of just planning and thinking and praying about our future, and before we did that together, we spent a great deal of time just on our knees, just to reset our hearts and say, God, before we start talking about where we're headed as a staff and as a church, we just want to have your heart to be able to walk with us. And my my hope is that that sort of posture would be the, the, the way in which we would all, just over the next number of weeks begin to think and act in a manner that fits with the posture of James chapter 4. That's the problem. Thankfully, the text doesn't stay there. Verse 6, here's the promise. It says this, I love this, but he gives more grace. 
Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but notice he gives grace to the humble. So here's what this means. It means that there is this overflow of God's grace available to those who would understand my tendency is towards self-sufficiency, and instead of trusting in myself, God, I'm going to rely on you and ask you to be able to help me. He gives more grace. The point of this text is that there's an antidote for everything that we just listed previously. The disappointing and grievous self-centeredness that we just heard about has a remedy. There is a divinely given path. So if you're here today and as I've just kind of walked through this text, maybe one or two of those just sort of landed on your heart and you're like, "Mm, you know what, I need to think about that. Or maybe you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus and the bottom of your life is just kind of dropped out and you're here today trying to figure out, what, what do I do? I want you to know that all those circumstances of your life are all designed by God in order to help you to understand what your greatest need is. And here's the hope that I have for you. On the authority of the scriptures, on the authority of the word of God, it's this, no matter where you've been, no matter what happened, no matter how bad your self-centered pursuit has been, no matter how bad the consequences, no matter how bad the effects of the dynamics that are around you, there is still grace available for you. The Bible says he gives more grace. This grace comes through a relationship with Jesus. Jesus is the one who provides the grace. Jesus is the one who offers the grace. Jesus is the one who died for our sins because our ultimate expression of our self-sufficiency is our attempt to try and solve the problem with our own hearts. And the Bible tells us we can't solve that problem, only Jesus can. So somebody becomes a Christian when they come to realize, I need Jesus' help. And I hope today you'll come to a point where your heart will be moved to become a follower of Jesus even today. He gives more grace. The word is almost too familiar, isn't it? It means the favor, it means the kindness, it means the forgiveness of God. One of my favorite definitions is that grace is the power and the ability to be pleasing to God. So that's what he gives. He gives the ability to be pleasing to him. When somebody becomes a Christian, God graces them with forgiveness. He He causes them to be pleasing to him because of the sacrifice of Christ. God pours out his judgment on Christ so that he can then be gracious to us. For instance, Romans chapter 3 says this, we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus. The beautiful thing, though, is that that's only the beginning of grace for those who become the followers of Jesus, and the wonderful hope of the Bible is that God keeps giving grace. He's able to supply the grace that's needed for the gaps in life that are created just by living in the world, being a human being. And so the battle with self-sufficiency comes down to a question as to which promise are we going to believe? Are you going to believe the promise that God is ready to give you more grace? Or are you going to believe the promise that says, I've run out of grace. 
I need to take control of this myself. You see, anger and anxiety both have promises built into them. In anger, it says, if I just get upset, they'll do what I want. Anxiety says, if I just think more about this, I'll be able to figure out what to do. There are promises on either side of the ledger. And in the midst of this is this beautiful promise that comes to those who are desperate that says, God is ready to give you more grace if you just believe the promise. If you just embrace this, this opportunity that Jesus says, between the gaps of your life, you can believe that I'm sufficient for you. So friends, I want you to understand that at the end of the day, self-sufficiency is essentially a belief problem. Self-sufficiency is a belief problem where we place our trust and our hope in ourselves and not in God's ability to give us grace. And in small and then in large ways, we need to embrace a mindset of what it means to have a grace-breathing, God-trusting heart. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that giving, giving money is an important part of embracing this non-self-sufficient mindset. Let me explain how. When you give money away, you are in effect saying, God, I'm gonna trust you for the gap that's created by my giving. I take this money and I give it away because I believe that there's an economy that's greater than the economy of the United States, and that's God's economy. I believe that my trust and my hope rest for my future, not just in my 401k or my 403b. My trust and my hope for my future rests in God and God alone. So when I give money away, I'm exercising the muscle of believing that God's grace is sufficient for me. So by giving money away, I regularly remind my heart, I trust in God's grace, not in my own ability. I trust in God's help, not my financial portfolio. Then when I see my checking account go lower, it's in effect that I'm saying to my checking account and to my heart, we can trust God more than we can trust our numbers. But there's some of you Truth be told, you'd rather trust the number than you would trust in God's grace. And then, because you've not exercised that muscle on a regular basis when it comes to a major issue in your life, you wonder why is it that you have a difficulty in trusting in God's sufficiency? You see, in small and insignificant, small and insignificant ways, we need to embrace trusting that God has sufficient grace for the gaps. You see, the power of self-sufficiency shrivels when we live by the promise of God's grace. For instance, if you're here this morning and you might say, I don't don't know what the future holds for me. I just want to remind you, friend, God has sufficient grace for that. You might say, I'm so disappointed with with my life right now, but God has grace for that. You might say, I don't know how I'm going to reach my kids' hearts, but God has more grace for that. You may say, I'm so hurt by what they've said or what they've done, but I want you to know that God has grace for that. Maybe that you're here today and you're not in a hard spot. Your life is full of blessings and you're on top of the world. You're incredibly gifted and incredibly talented and you need to know that God's grace is sufficient for you and be careful you don't climb to the wrong mountain. So desperation is not just living always in crisis mode But rather, desperation is believing that the biggest crisis in your life would be trying to live without God's grace. 
Desperation doesn't mean that you're always in crisis. No, no, no. Desperation just means I believe that the biggest crisis would be if I try to live without God's grace. And self-sufficiency is the barrier to a life of desperation. So what then does our posture need to be? So if all that's true, then how does James tell us that we ought to live? Verses 7 to 10 identifies six particular things as it relates to our posture. He gives a series of, of short statements that reflect our need to live in a, in, a, in a particular way. Number one, beginning in verse seven, he says, submit yourselves therefore to God. The first posture here is simply acknowledging God's rightful place in your life. Or to think of it another way, think of it this way, stop resisting. So one of the steps that you can take in the midst of a, of a season where you feel like you're in crisis and trying to lean towards being desperate is just to tell yourself, stop resisting. Submit to God. The specific situation in James chapter four was the conflicts between people that were coming from the desire from what they wanted, and James simply wanted them to ask, have you ever considered what God wants? And so the idea is just to embrace a posture that has a willing heart underneath God's rule. Self-sufficiency not only cuts us off from God's grace as God allows us to go our own way, but it also puts us in a position where, in effect, we are acting like we are God. James would say, submit to God. Secondly, he would say, resist the devil. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James is acknowledging here that there's a, a real spiritual battle that's taking place. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, the devil does not want you to be desperate for God. He doesn't want you being dependent upon God's grace. He wants you trying to make it on your own. He hates God, he hates those who love God, and he hates those who depend upon God. So resist him, says James, by submitting to God, by doing what follows in this text. I want you to realize that you are in a real battle. Some of you are in a battle even today. Right now as I'm talking, there's this war going on within you saying, I can't give this up. And the Bible, in effect, is calling you, submit to God. Don't let the devil have a hold in your life anymore as it relates to your dependency on yourself. Then third, he says, draw near to God. The word and how it's used has an Old Testament worship context. The idea is connected to the way that Israel would gather at sort of the temple or the Mount, Mount Sinai. And the idea is that as we draw near on a, a weekly or a daily basis, that in that exercise we're drawing near to God and he's drawn near to us. So you've come this morning to church and I commend you for coming because that's part of the way that we draw near to God. You're, you're hearing things in this moment that you and I need to, 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 to hear, things from the Bible that we need to, to, to reckon with. We need to sing things that, that reorient our affections. You will be changed because you've been a part of the community of God. And I want you to know drawing near to him creates the opportunity for him to draw near to you. Number four. The text calls us to reflect. It says this, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. The idea is that cleansing of hearts, or cleansing of hands and purifying hearts means that we consider who we are and who God is. 
James is calling upon believers to reflect on what God has done for them, to confess their sins, and to realize how far they may be straying from God's purposes for them. So as it relates to your life, think of this. In the last few days, in the last few weeks, the last few months, how much self-sufficiency do you honestly see in your life? Because the problem is that much like pride, self-sufficiency and pride are often closely connected, self-sufficiency grows in the soil of an unexamined life. And by not stopping to consider what's going on inside of me, why is it that I'm trusting in myself? Why am I prayerless? Why am I filled with anger or anxiety? We fail to realize not only how far we've strayed, but also all that we're missing in terms of the provision of God's grace. And then he says that we're to lament. He says, verse 9, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. It's not that the Bible is against being happy or being joyful. The Bible is filled with commands to praise God and to be filled with joy. But what he's saying is there's another side to the equation in order to make Christianity complete, which means for us to take inventory of how easy it is for us to take over our own lives, for us to lament the struggle and the battle to submit to God, for us to lament how easy it is for us to want to be the captain of our own fate, how easy it is for us just to live as if God doesn't exist. And then crisis comes and we say to God, what are you doing? And God ought to look at us and say, what are you doing? You've been living your life like I don't even exist. I had to send this in order to wake you up to the reality of where you were headed. And rather than seeing suffering and hardship as something that's an inconvenience, we ought to see it as that which now has awakened us to really who we are and who God is. For some of you, you look back five years from now and you'll see this difficulty that you're in is the greatest gift that God ever sent you because it woke you up to the reality of where you were headed and it turned you a different direction. And what James says, instead of allowing crisis to do this, why not allow lament, intentionally leaning in and just acknowledging how real this self-sufficiency issue is. And then finally, he says this. This text ends with a beautiful amount of hope. He says, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James doesn't say all of this in order to be down on the people in his church. I'm not telling you this in order to be down on you or to be down on myself. Instead, the reason this is here is because the only solution, the only answer, and the only hope is for human beings to humble themselves underneath the sovereign hand of a God who's ready to give them grace. And the Bible says that those who acknowledge their need for God's help are the ones that God exalts. Here's the upside-down logic of Christianity. Those who exalt themselves are humbled. Those who humble themselves are exalted. And friend, the greatest barrier to God's grace in your life, the greatest hindrance to the outpouring of God's help is simply our belief, my belief, your belief in ourselves. And the faster we get to a point where we say, God, I need your help, the more opportunity there exists for God's grace to be applied. So if you're here today and the circumstances of life have made you realize you can't make it on your own as hard as it is, can you be thankful? Can you use the brokenness of your life as a platform to reaffirm your trust in God's grace? Can you tell him, I need you, God. Thank you that this trial has reminded me of my need of you. 
And if you find yourself in a position where you are consumed with anxiety, consumed with anger, would you consider today if, to what extent self-sufficiency is at the root? If you find yourself with dry eyes and a cold heart and a stubborn will, why not sever that pattern today? Why not resist the devil? Why not submit to God? Why not lament your sins? Why not run to Jesus? If you're here today, you're not yet a follower of Christ. Why not make today the day where you cross the line and say, God has ordained all of these events and opened my eyes in order for me to see I cannot solve my own problems. I need the grace of Jesus. Because what happens is in doing so, you discover how true the promise really is that Jesus gives more grace. He gives more grace. He gives more grace grace to those who will simply say, God, I'm not trusting in myself. I'm trusting in you. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, this barrier of self-sufficiency is something that we all feel. We know it's true and we need your help. We know it's true at so many levels and we're asking right now for you by your spirit to help us to see the ways in which this plaguing issue has affected our lives. We want to come, humble ourselves, repent of it, and ask you to provide grace, to provide help, the help that we so desperately need. So God, for those who are clinging today, just barely making it, help them, Lord, by this message, to be encouraged to keep pressing on for another week. And for those, Lord, who are just beginning to uncover the trauma of their own self-sufficiency, would you give them the strength to respond to what it is that you're saying? Well, thank you for speaking to us today from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.